Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We have a very special guest on for the first time, and I hope not the only time. Her name's Kate Slater. And I'm just going to go with the white anti-racist scholar and educator because that's that's the title I love, but she has multiple titles. So, Kate, welcome to Bitch Talk. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I am stoked. (laughs) (laughs) We are, too. Um, For people that don't know who you are and what you do, can you can you, you know, give just a little overall of of who you are in this world right now? Oh, man, that is a loaded question, mostly because. as we were just talking about, I'm eight and a half months pregnant. So that is like, that is basically trumping any other identity I have right now. Cause I'm just <laughs> tired and large is what I am. <laughs> um, Us too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the pandemic uh, overall sentiment. Yeah, exactly. Tired and large. Yeah. Tired and large. <laughs> so, so white anti-racist scholar and educator is a good, that's a good starting place. So I work in higher education. I'm a higher education administrator. I'm an assistant Dean of student affairs, which is a whole mess. And then I'm also a professor. I teach courses, um, two courses, uh, history, excuse me, teaching race, which is about the history of race and racism, which I teach to would-be teachers. One that centers the voices that have historically been erased from a lot of K-12 education. And then I teach a course called issues in education, which again, it's like, where do you start? Um, And, you know, then I spend my spare time talking about this failed experiment called whiteness and white supremacy. My doctoral research is a lot about toxicity in predominantly white institutions and the experiences that minoritized students have at those institutions. And I do research on the side about white identity formation. And then, you know, I'm up in these mean Instagram streets, uh, you know, <laughs> hosting, hosting lives with a lot of swear words where we talk about whiteness and white supremacy and, yeah. uh, how we all need to do better. Yeah. I, I, that's, well, that's where I found you is Instagram, <laughs> the mean Instagram streets. Is that how you, what you said? Cause that's very true. Um, I don't even know how I found you, but I'm so glad I found you. And, um, I, you know, I'll start with the simple question <laughs> when we talk about all of this. Um, what is being anti-racist? Oh God. Okay. Whew. Yeah. We have 22 minutes. So, <laughs> oh, all right. Keep it pithy. I'm really good at that. Um, no, I'm not, not even close. <laughs> so being anti-racist, I think for a lot of, a lot of white people, I'll put it this way myself, for those who can't see me, I'm a big old white lady. Um, so what anti-racist means is actively taking a stance to combat racism. And that means both individual racism, which a lot of us I think white people kind of think of when we think of our examples of racism, these kind of outsized acts that you see showing up in the news, like people using a racial slur, people saying terrible things, some act of violence. But more importantly, we also have to show up to interrupt systemic racism where it shows up. And that is a lot more insidious because by the very notion of the definition systemic, it's baked into the fabric of our society. 
So like, how do we as white people show up to combat racism when it's woven into, for example, K-12 curriculum or hiring practices or housing policies? And those are the things that I think for a lot of white people, at least in the past year and a half or so, those are the ways um, all of a sudden we have to be attuned to a different kind of racism, a more insidious racism, a, a less easy to identify racism. Um, but it's still taking an active stance to interrupt it. So with it, there's the recognition that if you're not doing anything, you're fucking part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So, oh, there's my first F bomb. Yay! <laughs> Let's we'll drink every time you yes. say the F word. This is oh, now this a drinking is, game. Yeah, I this is going to last eight minutes. <laughs> and, I, and I said F word. I meant fuck. Anyways. <laughs> I should have gotten more wine for this. Okay. Anyway, uh, what I love about um, your teaching is, yes, that it's not enough to just be not racist. You must be anti-racist. But, you know, when we have these conversations with people, people that I definitely consider, you know, allies, Mm -hmm. um, it's often met with some sort of defensive anger. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think it's important to know when you first started learning about systemic racism, did you go through this range of emotions as well? Because you didn't grow up, you didn't wake up knowing all of this. It's a, it's a learning curve for everyone. So um, can you talk about just the range of emotions that happens when you realize the depth of, of what's going on in our country and, and your part in that? Oh, absolutely. And I should also say that um, a key piece of, I think, being anti-racist is recognizing that it's never like a a done deal. You never show up like this perfectly formed anti-racist butterfly. That's just like come out of the cocoon, (laughs) fully formed, knowing everything about how to show up and when, and what the right way looks like. Um, So I say that to say, I'm still going through the emotions. I still get stuck in them all the time. So I try and talk about my background because I want to use my upbringing as an example of how there's really no situation that perfectly primes any person to be anti-racist. I'm, again, a white lady. I grew up in Maine, predominantly white schools, predominantly white workplaces, predominantly white college, like so little interaction for much of my formative years was ever with people of color. Um, And so there was, by virtue of that, I have been conditioned to think about the world in racist ways. My default when I moved through the world for the first 25 years of my life was to think that it was normal to be white and act white and talk white and do things in a white way and that anything outside of that was not normal. And that's kind of when we talk about race, like absorbed racism being a conditioning, that's kind of what that signals. If you don't know anything other than predominantly white spaces, You never, it never occurs to you to seek out anything differently. And you'll spend the rest of your life othering anything that does not reflect that experience. And so for me, when I started to really have a up close and personal understanding of systemic racism, it's when I worked at the nonprofit called the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. And I was one of the few white people in that space. And I was supporting entirely students of color, um, 99%, if not entirely. And for me, all of a sudden, I was bearing witness to a lot of stories and lived experiences from students of color that I'd never, ever, ever seen, listened, heard in my life. 
Um, and there's, there's only, you know, so many anecdotes you can hear before you're like, wait, there's so, like, there's something systemic going on underneath it. You know, there's only so many stories of students, um, again, at predominantly white colleges and universities or racism they experience in the K-12 sector before you begin to realize that it goes beyond the kind of racist individual acts that are easier for us to identify and therefore easier for us to separate ourselves from. So when I realized that like, not only was there a big old system at play, but also that I as a white person actually represented that system, participated in that system, and was one big cog in that racist machine, that to your point, like brought on all the emotions. I had white shame, I had white guilt, there was, um, I think, to be quite frank, because I was in a situation where I was advising students of color, like there was a hefty dose of super fucked up paternalism where I was like, oh my God, how can I fall all over myself to, you know, make up for 25 years of being a racist white girl and actually like fix all the things for you? How can I mm. fix all the things for you? Mm -hmm. um, and I really had to unpack a lot of that. And I didn't do it very well because I was doing it it wasn't an example where, again, like we talked about this anti-racist butterfly where I could go, go away and just kind of process those feelings alone. Like I was doing it in real time while I was still trying to show up for the students I was supporting in the ways they needed. So there were all the feelings, guilt, anger, frustration, defensiveness all the time. So defensive that I was like a good person and I was just being misunderstood. Um, and then it was just through unpacking that over and over and over again. And really having to challenge myself and be challenged um, by, by people that I'm very grateful for, um, that I really came to a point where I was like, oh, I feel like I can recognize these feelings and be attuned to them when they come up and recognize that they're not, that they're a part of whiteness. They're a part of my conditioning. And so I can work through them and hopefully help other people work through them because defensiveness is like the first thing that white people experience when they like wake up and they're like, wait, what racism exists? Crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The first thing is they're like, oh, well, but not in me. <laughs> and it's like, right. no, 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 sweetie. And you, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I watched um, one of your trainings. It's up on your website um, that I think was last, last May, maybe, or June. Oh, yeah. it, was a, it was like, I think you, you were, you were saying it was about 45 days after George Floyd was killed. Yeah. Um, murdered, I should say. And, um, Thank you so much, first of all, for making that accessible to folks. Um, I just posted on my Facebook page because I'm like, I think that's where the most people might see it. We'll see. Who knows? The algorithms. Um, Damn algorithms. <laughs> it was so informative. And I wonder if you would talk about your four S's because part of it, which I don't want to spoiler alert, but is like shut up and listen. And um, I think that's one of the bigger problems of society in general, right? We're all talking at each other and we're not shutting up and listening. So if you don't mind sharing those four S's, cause it's like, those are just like, maybe I'll just have them on the wall, you know? <laughs> maybe it's my next tattoo. I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually laughing because I remember the first two and maybe it's a message oh, of pregnancy break. <laughs> I'm so, I didn't mean to like, just quiz you on your four S's. You Sorry. should have, you absolutely, like I look such a fool right now. No. <laughs> The four S's, which I coined and can't remember, um, which are, so first is, is shut up and listen. And I think, I think that is the one that honestly, most white people have the hardest time with because a whole vestige of 
white dominant culture, which by the way, we live in this full fact, like we live in a white supremacist society, meaning this, this country and this society were founded to support the, uh, progress and success <laughs> of white people with minimal barriers. That's white supremacy right there. So when a lot of people, a lot of white people are confronted with this understanding of this society that we participate in, from which we just get privilege, whether or not we've earned it, whether or not we want to believe it's there, a huge part of that is, is defensiveness, just like you were talking about. And with defensiveness comes this need for us to make our voice heard and to us to defend ourselves or talk about what we think we know or talk about our intentions. Um, and there are a lot of white people who think they know what racism is and we don't. Full stop, end of story. Being a white person in a white supremacist society, we don't know. And so I think that this goes back to kind of the, how do I put this? I, I, the, so the phrase that I think of the most when I think of what it looks like for white people to actually shut up and listen is for white people to seek to understand a lived experience that is not their own, that maybe they haven't ever had to bear witness to before. Mm. And by seek to understand, I don't mean just show up and listen. I mean, actually bear witness and try to understand what forces in society make that experience happen that we may or may not be complicit in. And so shut up and listen is really this need for white people to just close their mouth and start listening to the experiences of people in this country who actually experience racism. Um, instead of us thinking we have somehow cracked some kind of code and figuring out how to fix it all. Um, and having done a ton of corporate trainings and, and <laughs> trainings in educational settings, that's like, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like <laughs> you said, to, maybe I'll get a tattoo. Maybe all white people should just tattoo it on their back. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's forehead, the, that's the forehead, yeah, forehead, exactly. Backwards, yeah. because then they can see it in the mirror every morning. So smart. <laughs> genius. Genius. <Sorry>. Absolute genius. <laughs> so like a big part of that is just recognizing that we need to remove our voice from this discussion because we just don't know. Um, and so then there's show up, which is um, a willingness. Um, so it's not just kind of physically showing up, but it means for white people being willing to show up in, in mind, spirit, body, heart, which means if you're committing to anti-racism, you don't just kind of get to like tap in and out, you know, one of the biggest vestiges of white privilege is like, if white people don't want to be engaged in any anti-racist activity, they never have to. They can live their entire life and be just fine without ever having to tap into that and stay rooted in that fight and stay rooted in that cause. And so showing up means, first of all, that we put ourselves on the line. We, we take risks. We put ourselves out there in service of social justice and racial liberation, but also when we fuck up, which we inevitably will, we, we show up again and again and again. And I think that's the key piece that a lot of white people, like the minute they get confronted or called out or someone Oof. says, hey, I appreciate your well-intentioned move, Lisa, at the staff meeting, but it was racist for X, Y, and Z reasons. Lisa's like, oh my God, I'm not cut out for this. And like 
taps out and never has to tap in again if, if she doesn't choose to. And so showing up for me means showing up again and again and again with a willingness to show up imperfectly, recognizing that we're going to mess up because we're white people in a white system. Um, and yet we show up again and again, and we don't let it keep us from, from the fight. Um, and then there's support. And so for me, a huge part of that is, um, you know, financial support. It's, um, it's the amplification of voices. And certainly I think, especially as we've seen on social media, like the algorithm's racist as hell. You know, we yes. see that on Instagram. <laughs> we see it on mm-hmm. Facebook. Hell yes. <laughs> oh my God. Like mm-hmm. Zuckerberg, what are you doing? He's probably just flagged well, me. <laughs> what is i mean no no comment we don't have time for that conversation I know. i'm like that is more than than 25 minutes but um so so support for me means lending tangible support to the movement for racial justice and liberation and so that can look a whole lot of ways um it can look like time it can look like resources it can look like access to particular circles of influence it definitely looks like money you know, mm-hmm. white people, if, if we are learning from people of color, like pay them for their whole damn time. Cause you're getting whole ass professional developments on Instagram every night of the week, if you want mm-hmm. to. So compensating people for their time. But I also think support means for us, white people, again, taking a step back and letting people of color and communities of color, tell us what the hell they need and being willing to just take direction in that way which again, a lot of white people are like, well, I donate to the ACLU every month. My work's done. And they can't think of the ways in which they might lend support in more outside the box or creative ways than that. And so it's thinking really expansively about what that support could look like. And then there's, um, there's school yourself, which is the, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the learning and the unlearning piece. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think one of the I don't want to say one of the hardest parts of anti-racist activism for white people, because it's not fucking hard, <laughs> like relatively speaking, <laughs> like it's not fucking hard. Um, but for white people, I think um, the fact that we have to show up and do the work while simultaneously being in a process of learning and unlearning is very hard because, you know, certainly for me, like I said, when I first came to an understanding of what anti-racism looked like, the thought that I was going to continue to fuck up and cause harm was soul crushing. Mm-hmm. It was soul crushing to all of a sudden be attuned to the ways in which I, as a white person had moved through this world for 25, 26, 27 years and to, and caused harm without knowing it. And then to recognize that I might continue to cause that harm. That's really painful to reckon with. Um, because you know, we don't ever want to, to do that harm again. That's kind of part of that awakening. But as white people, we're going to. Like, that's just part of it. Um, I continue to fuck up all the time. And I get very lucky when I'm called out. But sometimes I know that I cause harm without even being aware of it. Mm-hmm. That's a vestige of being a white person. Um, so schooling yourself means that you commit to that frequent learning and unlearning And you recognize that you're kind of always a work in process. You're always calling higher and trying to do better. And the learning never ends. Um, So it's a willingness to say, what are the gaps in my knowledge? Mm -hmm. How do I go out and fill those gaps and address those gaps without maybe causing additional labor for the people of color or the communities of color in my life? 
Mm. So that's it. The four S's. Thanks. Thanks for the quiz. Yeah. Well done. That was beautiful. <laughs> I think I, well done. I think that was a 50% out of a hundred. So. <laughs> I don't well, think so. Yeah. And on, on the topic of the four S's and resources, I hope that everybody will turn to your website because there's just, there's so much there. Thank you for just making it real easy to, to break down, you know, what I need to learn and where, where it is. Um, and along those lines, you have um, an anti-racist roadmap that you've put together that ends with a, a personal mission statement. I, I found it so um, uh, powerful just in terms of restructuring how you think about your life and what kind of impact you can make. Mm. Um, but, but one thing that you wrote that really hit me was um, that the hallmark of white supremacy culture is individualism as opposed to collectivism. Mm. And mm-hmm. I feel like um, a lot of times, you know, if you're not saying what's in it for me, then you're worried about maybe your quality of life will lessen. And that's mm. what this whole whole movement is. Oh, well, then, you know, you want to take away from my life then. And, and it just it mm. just does not mm. work that way. And, that, and that's what I what I really love. Like, I, I love traveling and, and going to third world countries. I felt this um this unity and this sense of community that I've never fully felt in the States. So can you talk about just, you know, what is that phrase? A a rising tide lifts all ships like that. People just don't understand that if we are all doing better collectively, Mm -hmm. then all of our lives get better collectively. You said it. That's 100% it. And like that, you know, when we talk about, when I talk about the end goal of this anti-racism, like the end Mm. goal is liberation. And that to me, anything less than that is so insufficient to talk about. Because for me, exactly as you said, liberation signals freedom from oppression for all people who are oppressed, for all identities that have been historically oppressed. So, you know, anything less than that, um, how, how could you say that's sufficient? How could any of us say that's enough? Like we've, we've done good enough. And so um, for me, one of the wildest parts of this past year and a half has been thinking expansively about what community looks like um, and thinking expansively about what accountability looks like when it's tied to a community. Um, And that's a piece that I think I've spent my whole life thinking about how my individual acts impact or resonate or translate in particular areas. And to realize that anti-racist activism and liberatory activism are dictated by the needs of a community of which I am just a tiny, tiny, tiny part. And actually a pretty damn insignificant part because I'm not representative of oppressed, many oppressed identities. Um, That has been a really powerful, it's been a really powerful I think reckoning to come to, because um, on one hand, it doesn't absolve me of my individual behaviors. I'm still individually accountable for the shit that I pull. And when I fuck up on an individual level and cause harm to a community, I'm accountable to that community, me, myself, and I, just me, Kate. But I also think that on the flip side, the community is what keeps me rooted. And so days when I get very stuck in my feelings or it feels like this is all too big and I'm never going to solve it. I remember I'm not supposed to solve it as a person. This is a community that I get to be a part of. And if I can move the, the wheel like a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit in my own way, that's my job in service of community. And so it, there's, there's just something where you realize um, this is bigger than you. And if the work you're not doing is not rooted in deep, 
deep love for that community, then you're missing the mark. And I think just like you said, in this country, individualism is the way of the game. There's a scarcity mindset. I mean, look at what this mm-hmm. pandemic has done. We're like, mm-hmm. if, you know, if, if, if I'm not, if I'm not getting mine, then someone else is getting mine. Um, and recognizing that that's completely antithetical to the understanding of what liberation looks like, where everyone is taken care of and everyone cares for each other, um, which sounds again, so wishy-washy, but it's just because we haven't ever seen it before. That doesn't mean we can't dream about it. Um, and anything less than that, again, is, is just settling. So it's been a very powerful, I think that's been the best part of this past year, especially when so many of us were isolated and feeling so alone, to recognize that I certainly was part of this much bigger community of, of radicals and activists and scholars and people who are doing the work in their own ways. Um, I get to draw inspiration from that. And I get to be a part of that. I mean, we're wrapping up, but I don't want to yet. Do you still have some time? Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Um, Because I still have a lot of questions here. We should ask if you still have, you know, drink. No, her apple juice. Your apple juice. Um, uh, I was going to ask because I was watching the video that you had up there. Um, Do you still feel like we're in a movement? I know. Because when you when you said that, I was like, are we? Yeah, (laughs) I, I think that we are. So here's the thing that I'll say, we're part of a movement, whether or not we want to be, I think whether or not that movement is cyclical or directional changes from day to day. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so on one hand, what I mean by that is like on the days when I get really fucking pissed off and depressed. And I'm just like, Oh, white people. Why are, why are we so fucking shitty? It mm-hmm. feels like it is just a recycling of the same old shit. And being someone who also teaches the history of this country, like I will sit in bed and I'll be like, Eli, it's the fucking reconstruction all over. Like, I'll just be yelling at my husband about facts about the reconstruction because <laughs> it's just like, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. And so especially when we have to think about and talk about systemic racism. Like one of the things I want to point out is racism has not been solved. It has not gotten incrementally better in some ways, maybe in other ways, not at all. And mostly racism has just been reconfigured. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the way I think of it. So that's when it feels cyclical, but on days when it feels directional, I recognize that social media has played a powerful role in for better or worse, Mm -hmm. bringing an understanding of what racism looks like to a point where people have to be confronted with it. You can't, you know, it's not kind of, I think of my parents and I think of like them watching Rodney King on TV and Mm -hmm. they, you know, there wasn't this kind of constant in your face, you cannot look away, which Instagram brings many of us when it comes to an understanding of how racism operates and shows up in this country every single fucking day Mm -hmm. in these horribly violent acts, but also in these like shitty mundane everyday ways that we see. So I think that on days when it feels like it's moving in a direction and we're part of a movement, there's the recognition that it is like a festering wound that's coming to a head. And the, the, the curtain is being peeled back in a way where if you still want to be a white person in this country or still want to be someone in this country, full stop, who subscribes to whiteness, 
there is a certain level of ignorance that you don't get to plea anymore. Like you mm-hmm. can't say you don't know, you right. can't say you don't understand. You can say, I choose to not know, I choose to not understand, but we're getting to a saturation point where it is so, it is so, it is such a part of the cultural lexicon to have words like anti-racism at your fingertips, to have words like white supremacy, all of a sudden to have a much more everyday understanding of those words. And when you get to that point, you can't plead ignorance anymore. I mean, I guess you can, and there are plenty of people that do. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. But that's where it feels like it is a wound coming to a head. And that's where it feels like the movement is happening. Where again, you, you have people who are like, I never had to think about this. And now I'm thinking about it on this pretty mass level. And that's what I have to hang my hat on on days when I'm like screaming about civil war era trauma to my mm-hmm. you know, partner, whoever will listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, on the topic of this movement and uneducation <laughs> also, yeah, right. um, you know, we just had a, a an election and, you know, the governor elect in Virginia, uh, the Republican governor elect, he certainly used cult- the cultural and, and race war um, to benefit himself uh, talking about critical race theory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this whole fear mongering. And, and now parents think that they, they should decide, you know, what, what the kids uh, oh should God. learn. So, uh, I mean, basically fear mongering your life's work, <laughs> yeah. like what you're oh, yeah. doing. Um, so can you just talk about how infuriating that is and why, why do you think that was a successful strategy for him? I mean, it's working. It works. I mean, it, it totally works. It totally works because It's this kind of dog whistling where you are stirring up fear and hysteria about something that like most people do not understand. Um, And so I think similar, similar ways about like the kind of red scare of, you know, earlier in this country, again, this is nothing new, the kind of movement, um, this retaliatory movement of certain political parties and being like, uh, things are just getting a little too equal over here. So we're going to, we're going to throw some hot, hot hysteria into the fire, but yeah. So, so, you know, I'm a critical race scholar. So I spent my entire doctoral experience studying critical race theory and bringing it as using it as a lens through which I understood my research and therefore education. Critical race theory is just critical thinking about history. It is a framework where we say, how do race seemingly race neutral systems and politics actually continue to augment and preserve racial disparities that exist. Full stop. Easy peasy. You can How look at like, yeah, I I Jesus Christ. That was You're the like, worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Stop Clutch, this recording. Clutching my pearls. Clutching my pearls. Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. But wow. you know, it's actually been this, this like mass movement on the right wing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the, the hysterical prices are not even trying to hide it. Like, this is not even subtle. They're just like, how can we stir up hysteria about this notion that heaven forbid kids are being taught to think critically about the history in this country? And first of all, the reason for that is K-12 education does not teach kids writ large to think critically about our history. Correct. And I think as we saw, we got to a point in the past year and a half where there was more of a call to do so, where there is more of a call um, Mm -hmm. like kind of on a large cultural level to teach kids in a way that again, centers these voices that have historically been erased from the narrative. 
And, you know, this is a phenomenon called white lash, which is where, you know, I'm not going to say all white people, but as a vestige of whiteness and white dominant culture, any threat to our notions of our own superiority or rightness or deservedness of all of the things that we've got in this world, that can't be disturbed. And so critical race theory, which again, is not being taught in K-12 education, it is a framework, but it became this catch-all for any kind of curriculum that was going to look critically at the, these nuanced ways that racism existed throughout American history and continues to exist in American history. And I think that's the other piece. You know, you look at the kind of narratives that um, anti-CRT opponents want to peddle in K-12 curriculum. And it's like this notion that, oh, racism was solved. Like, you know, civil war happened, Martin Luther King and everyone's equal, the end, like full stop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously it's, it's, that's patently false. And obviously it's much, much more, you know, nuanced and problematic than that. And, you know, if, if you teach histories in a way that center the voices that have historically been erased, that directly conflicts with a notion of white superiority, of a notion that white people have earned all of the things we've been given through our own individual hard work, not through a series of systems that were set up to benefit us. So, yeah. So, but it's been, you know, to your point, it's been fucking maddening because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, why are y'all coming for this? Like, you don't have anything better to do, but the truth is no. And because uh, it's easy, right? Because no one, no one looks up anything. Yeah. No one's going to do their, research. not no one, yeah, but like it. most people. Just a couple more questions and we'll wrap. Andrew, you okay? Do you have more questions too, maybe? Well, forever, but I can just, yeah, just do I know. yours. This, and this let's could be like four hours. Of, let's let her rest. Of, I mean, of Kate's <laughs> inner talk. Um, <laughs> so this isn't me handing over the keys to white people. And I just want to be really honest. I'm half white. So this is all very, it's all, you know, there's a lot going on in my head. Um, but do you feel like it's up to white people to turn the tide of racism or and doing the anti-racist work for something to really change in this country? Oh, that's a, so there's a simple answer and there's a more complex answer. The simple answer is fuck yeah. Um, You know, we made this mess. Um, We have always historically um, worked the systems in this country to benefit us. And so really, all white people are implicated in that. And I mean that with my whole heart, like on today's edition of like, I said what I fucking said, all white people are implicated in that. (laughs) That's the simple answer. The larger answer is that you have people who happen to be white and then you have whiteness, which is what people subscribe to, Mm -hmm. which are behaviors and characteristics, which uphold white supremacy. You don't have to be white to uphold whiteness. And there are plenty examples of examples of people of color who are continuing to um, vote for and throw their weight behind policies that directly do harm to the communities they come from. Clarence Thomas is a perfect example. No one's going to fight me on that. No one's going to fight me on Clarence Thomas. I hope. Well, that was a shout. Someone will. It's fine. Someone will. Yeah. So, so I do think that all white people are implicated because we directly benefit from this system. And so even if we are doing all the work, we're still benefiting. And so we have to be all of us, all white people actively working, again, 
the term divesting from whiteness, but ridding ourselves, spending that privilege that we just get by virtue of being our skin color in this society. But then there is also attuning ourselves to what whiteness looks like and how we, um, how all people may uphold oppressive systems, hierarchies, and structures of power that, again, are run counter to what liberation looks like. Anyone can act in oppressive ways. You know, we mm-hmm. all have a host of identity markers and backgrounds that give us access to power or put us at further proximity from power. And so any one of us is capable of causing harm in those ways. And we have to, we have to recognize when that shows up um, as well. Yeah, that's what it's say. <laughs> well, I, I just love that um, you're bringing life into this world because <laughs> you know, this, this child Sorry. is going to be, you know, is, is like we need more people like you procreating, you know, and less less of other types of, of folks. But um, but when you think of like raising a child in this time, um, I, I love that you say. I can do what I can do. We want to solve everything and fix everything. And if we can't do that, then what's the purpose? But that's not like, I just think that your perspective is so right on. Like, this is what I can do. And, and right. it's empowering to know that you, you have all of these tools to teach, you know, your child. So what, what are your thoughts coming into parenthood and, uh, you know, our next generation? Oh, man. First of all, I think... You only have to look at a classroom. And I, I should let you know, I do also have a three-year-old who is a holy terror. Okay. Raising hell in all her circles. Okay. So yeah, we, we've got our hands full over here. But you only have to look at a classroom full of three-year-olds or two-year-olds to understand that racism is learned, to understand how racism is learned. Because I, I truly mean this. Kids understand difference. Kids know right from wrong. Kids at young ages can conceptualize, even if you can't explain to them, hey, you know, I'm not sitting down with my three-year-old and being like, okay, Julia, we're going to talk about systemic racism in healthcare. You know, I'm still talking to her about (laughs) difference. I'm talking to her about what, what is unfair versus fair. I'm talking to her about what it looks like when people hurt other people. You know, those are things that are tied into racism. Those are things that are vestiges of racism that she understands And you do your kids such a fucking disservice when you think they're not capable of grasping these concepts, because then you're just kind of furthering their conditioning process. You know, I think of myself, like my parents, like I'm sure many other white parents throughout this country, we just didn't really talk about it. And they were equity minded. They are, you know, progressive people. My parents are wonderful people, but it was just not something we talked about. And like, that's the narrative that I think so many especially white people who are now in the stage of being like, holy fuck, I have so much to learn and unlearn. That's a vestige of that upbringing. Being like, that's something we're not going to talk about because it's not something that is relevant to us as white people. And so that's what I'm trying to counteract with my kids. And that's what I think all parents can counteract. Those are easy steps to take. Oof. Thank you. Yes. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> next time you come on, we'll just talk about, yeah, raising kids and also not even raising kids. We don't have kids, but, um, but like being, <laughs> being, you know, Ange comes from a immigrant family, you know, my dad was first generation with a, and I had a, I have a white mother. 
the the um the process of being an American and being mm. white, at least mm. for me in my household, was like, that's what you are. Wow. So that's also like a whole other level of conversation. Next time, after you give birth and like, you know, four months, <laughs> five months, whatever, when you're back. Totally fine. Um, okay. I think the last question is how do you take breaks and when do you take breaks? <laughs> Hysterical. As an as a, as a anti-racist <laughs> white lady, like how, I mean, it's, you're three hours ahead right now, girl. Right. Yeah. How do I take breaks? Um, you know, oh, truth be told, I wish I had a better answer for that. Cause I'm actually, I'm, I'm just, I'm shit at it. And I think that that's like a vestige of me just constantly feeling like I'm a guilty, like just feeling like a guilty white person who's mm-hmm. like, I don't get to take a nap. There's still racism to fight, you know, and I don't mean to sound yeah. reductive, mm-hmm. but like, it's very hard to, um, let's just say that the side of me, who's like, you have to single-handedly cure racism, like shows up a lot in these spaces. Taking breaks though, for me, looks like, um, actually figuring out ways that I can like, this sounds real dumb, but like live out my values while also like doing things that nurture me and sustain me. So for example, I read so many fucking romance novels and I really try to read romance novels by, <laughs> you know, authors of color Okay, <laughs> because I'm like, I'm supporting a racist publishing industry in being more diverse, but also like I get to get to the steamy page where I'm like sitting alone in the dark, reading this book and be like, nobody come at me. I'm in the hot part, you know, <laughs> <laughs> while you drink Amazing. your apple juice, Well, I drink my apple juice, and, yeah. you know, my husband no, will come. No wonder you like, keep no. popping them out, Kate, <laughs> all these romance novels. <laughs> That's it. I read romance novels. I watch a lot of great British Bake Off. I find it very oh, soothing. Us too. Oh, oh it's kind of the best. What it's a, very healing. Right? Sometimes you're just like, I just want the most dramatic thing to be like, did the fucking souffle rise? That's right. all. I have did they burn before. the caramel? We're on caramel week. Yeah, I don't know. Caramel week was very dramatic, y'all. Well, we, we haven't finished. We haven't finished. Uh, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, quickly, have you have you read any of Samantha Irby's oh, stuff? Fuck or yes. Have you already done like Instagram live with her and your best friends? Because I'm jealous uh, if that's true. I'm sorry. That's that, it's amazing you think I'm that cool. No, but put uh, it on the bucket list for 2022. Oh, hey Samantha Irby, you want to go and do the work? <laughs> can we <laughs> can we just have like bitch talk sessions slash do the work? I mean, I anyways, I'm a little obsessed with her right now. Um She's- a gift. Have you read her Judge Mathis recaps? Oh, I just signed up for that. <laughs> Buckle the fuck up. Because at the end of the day, when I'm like, everything's dark, I'm like, I just want Samantha Irby to talk about Judge Mathis. Like, it is a gift. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, she is a gift. And I, I really, I finished a whole book finally uh, during my honeymoon. It was great. Um, sure. My husband loved it. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's amazing. Um, Kate Slater, you are a gift and thank you awesome. so much for coming on bitch talk. I seriously would love to have you back on again and we can talk more about being, you know, white anti-racist, uh, folks in general, but, yeah. um, where can people find you? Oh, please, please follow me on Instagram. And just so y'all know, like Instagram is where I live and it, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not cut out for these TikTok streets. Like, please. Oh yeah. We're not either. <laughs> I will not Too try. Harsh. I have not downloaded the app. No, thank no. you. Reels are enough. Reels are enough. Thank you. <laughs> I, I haven't even cracked the reel. My co-host. So on, on Thursdays, I co-host a show called Unapologetic. 
with my fellow critical race scholar and bestie, Dr. Angel Jones. So you mm-hmm. can follow both of us and, and watch that. And on Tuesdays, I host a show called do the work with Dr. Kate, which every time I say it, I'm like, God, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> like, who am I? And that I get to interview like scholars and activists and people doing the work all in their own circles. And there's been like an unbelievable lineup um, these past few months where I'm still like, oh my God, like, oh my God, if people want to talk to me. That's real cool. That's so- us. Every time someone says yes, we're like, really? Okay. <laughs> when you guys, you do. When you message me, I was like, mm, was there a different Kate? Did they oh. get it wrong? <laughs> no, uh, never, never. So follow me on Instagram, y'all. Cater Slater. I post a ton of resources there. Yep. Ton, a ton of resources. Everything from critical race theory to why Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, why you need to. <laughs> Why you need to do some educating of yourself on Indigenous Peoples Day to what are podcasts I'm listening to. Um, It's all there. That's where I host a ton of resources and you can catch the show. Well, last thing I'll say is we're going to release this the day before Thanksgiving. Oh, Oh, uh, I mean, hey, you got to get in there. We're going to have some serious talks on that day. Oh, I'm not, but people are. Um, Thanksgiving, National Confront Your Racist Uncle Day. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. No fucks giving. (laughs) Wow. Put it on a T-shirt. But Kate, I do want to thank you for making such a hard topic really fun and attainable <laughs> when, when I, when we talk, when I talk to you and it, because obviously we have work to do too. This is not yeah. just for white people. This is for everybody, oh, right. uh, but you make it really like easy to easy to, to think yes. that <laughs> like yes. we can do it. it's not this. Yeah. Impossible, unattainable thing. So, and you make it fun. So thank you. I just appreciate That's you. That's awesome. Thank you. That's high praise. Wow. <laughs> I made, I made anti-racism fun. I'm going to call my mom and be like, guess what? (laughs) That's what should be on a shirt or a bag. Making anti-racism fun again. (laughs) Again? Uh, I don't know. We have two things, fucks giving and making fun. No fucks giving. No fucks giving. I'm here for all this merch. And she kind of should make that. And then, but quoted by Dr. Angela. Angela (laughs) Tamora. Yeah. Exactly. That's just my nickname. It's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Kate, get back to your three-year-old and like, yeah. Have, and have a, have a great uh, labor experience. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Have a fun no. labor. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's normalize that being like a sign off, like have fun with your delivery. Good luck. Like, yeah. love, that. love that energy. Cause that's we would what love to interview someone as they're giving birth. Yeah. So that's really that in the back of your mind. Yeah, that would be a bitch case. talk exclusive. Just so we y'all do it. We it was a lot of like screaming and Spice Girls. That was like my experience. Oh, <laughs> tell me what you want. What you Some want. real highs and lows. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. could be an Instagram um, live, Kate. Um, <laughs> no, really, seriously, good luck to you. I'd, I'd love to keep in touch and have you back. So thank you all. This is great. Yeah. I appreciate thank you. It. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. <laughs>